Blue collar people are some of the grittiest, toughest, bravest human beings on the planet. Every building, bridge, and road was built on the backs of their hard work. Every piece of raw material was mined by their calloused hands. They manufacture our goods and transport them around the world. We see that strong outer shell, but there's more to every person than meets the eye. In this podcast, blue-collar business leaders tell their stories of courage and victory over crushing defeats. That's only possible because of a mental and emotional fortitude and a willingness to ask for help. It's our mission to bring hope to those of us who are strong on the outside, but may be living a life of quiet desperation on the inside. We'll do that by working together to tell the truth about the challenges we face and what it really takes to break through them. All right, everybody, welcome back to the Tragedy to Triumph podcast. I am your host, Mick Carbo, and I am here with a very special guest today, Dr. Sally Spencer Thomas. Uh, Sally is an amazing individual. Uh, We don't know each other too, too well, but I've been stalking her a little bit and I've gotten to uh, get present to some of the amazing work that she's doing out there. Uh, uh, Dr. Spencer Thomas is a clinical psychologist. She's a uh, inspirational speaker and she's an, she's an amazing social entrepreneur that has come from uh, uh, some some things that she's been through in her life that she's going to be sharing with us today. And I'm just really excited for you all to get to know Sally a little bit and for me to, to learn more about the work that she's doing too. So uh, with that, Sally, would you, would you mind taking a moment and just uh, introducing yourself and letting us know what you would like us to, uh, to learn about you? Yeah, no, no problem. Mick, I just want to start off with that deep expression of gratitude, both for being invited to be on your podcast and for the podcast, because this is amazing. And I feel like we're going to be kindred spirits because the things that you listed for me about why you're doing this and what you're trying to achieve um, really speaks to my heart about what I think the levers are on what is going to make a real difference in this area. So thank you. Thank you for your your boldness and your leadership here. Um, So thanks. yeah, Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, as you mentioned, I, I've been trained as a mental health provider, but I was one of those people early on in my career. Um, I loved learning about psychology. And then as soon as I got into the work of therapy, I was like, hmm, I don't know that I have the personality that's best suited to be a therapist. I was feeling trapped in an office and I really felt um, that I would do better uh, in like systems and cultural change work. And that also if we pulled the right levers upstream from this person's crisis, they wouldn't have to be in so much pain. And so that's how my brain worked. Um, Anyway, I moved from psychology in its traditional therapy sense to psychology more in terms of social change sense and worked in health and wellness and and then leadership. And I loved it. Um, And then in 2004, I lost my brother to suicide. And that was a game changer. And many of us have those moments in our life that define our life before and our life after. And my brother and I were very close. He was my only sibling and um, and his death was incredibly tragic. And so I felt a very huge calling after he died to dedicate my life, to try to prevent what happened to Carson to happening from other people. And that journey has eventually led me to be talking to you. Yeah. Well, well, thanks for being willing to share so openly about that with us. And 
I, I imagine that was just like a, you, you mentioned it's a, um, it was one of those kind of game changer or life changing things that happened. Like there was life before that and then life after. So is there anything that you're willing to share with us about what that time of your life was like? Sure. And we can really trace that story back over a decade before, you know, you just, mm. you can start to connect dots, you know, as you, uh, you know, weave your life together. And so, you know, my brother was um, 19 years old when he was diagnosed with bipolar condition. And he happened to uh, be at Bowdoin College, which is a small liberal arts school in Maine, where I also went and my father went, um, when he made some pretty dumb decisions and got himself kicked out. And so my father was just beside himself and took my brother to see a psychiatrist. And the psychiatrist said, your, you know, your son has bipolar condition. And this was the late eighties. Nobody's really talking about this kind of stuff. And my brother's just like, I don't know what the heck that is, but I don't have it. And I'm fine. And then he went on to, to show the world that he was fine. And he just knocked it out of the park. He was, um, he found himself a job during this year off from school selling encyclopedias door to door, which is not the most glamorous job. Most of your listeners probably don't even know what encyclopedias are, but <laughs> he, uh, he was so good at it because he was so influential influential and charismatic that he just sold a whole bunch of books so much so that by the end of the year, he had a sales team in three states and um, they sold books so that he earned points and took his team to Hawaii. You know, it was just like that kind oh, of oh. gift that he discovered at 19. And he goes back to school, he gets his degree and, you know, he's on this road to just uh, a, a real huge life. Um, and he manages his bipolar condition pretty well. Like he has episodes of depression that are pretty, uh, pretty debilitating. And, you know, he tries a bunch of stuff. He tries medication, he tries talk therapy, but he doesn't really share with anybody his struggles. Um, and so other than his most inner circle people, nobody really knows. All they see is this magical person. And then in the summer of 2004, right? So late eighties to 2004, a, a number of years have passed. Um, he has a, a, his first blown episode with with mania. All right. So before that, he had what we would call hypomania, which is basically just an elevated mood state. People feel euphoric. They feel energized. They have a lot of drive. Um, this is why he was so successful as a businessman. Um, mania is a totally different animal. Uh, in mania, people become very erratic. They stop sleeping and they engage in, in all kinds of really reckless behavior. And in just a couple of months, my brother just completely destroyed his life. And so we knew something was wrong and we tried to reach out and support him. Um, but unfortunately, one of their hallmark mania is that often when people are in the throes of it, they they don't realize that what they're doing is reckless or dangerous. Um, in fact, they feel um, very sure of their decisions. Um, and so he would just, he just boxed us all out and really pulled away from the family. And so that was devastating because I knew, uh, I knew what I was looking at and I knew how much trouble he was in, but nobody could reach him. And uh, it wasn't until around Thanksgiving of that year that he met with his accountant and his accountant said, you're broke, you have no more money, it's over. And for him, he really identified as a successful and wealthy businessman. And so that news was just devastating. And he looked back at the wreckage that he had made of his life. And um, he just completely fell into the worst depression we had ever seen. Yeah. He, he lost all this weight and all this stuff. And 
luckily he came home to the family. Um, but in hindsight, I think he only came back to say goodbye. And two and a half weeks later, he took his life. So, so you think that he had that planned? It's hard to know. You know, you don't really know. Um, I think there's a lot of ambivalence that people have as they think about their, about suicide and, and those feelings kind of wax and wane, but we have, we have some evidence um, of him, you know, saying goodbye to people one by one during those last couple of weeks. And even six months prior, he uh, got a will and got his life insurance together. And so there was just a, a few signs that this, you know, this was something that was on his mind. Mm. But you, but nobody really was present to that until. After. Oh, no, we all knew. We all knew. And we I had asked him directly. And so yeah. we had we. Oh, yeah. We rallied like we completely rallied and, you know, surrounded him with love and support and, you know, took him to his psychiatrist and, you know, did all these things that we could do. Um, but he promised us he wouldn't do it. Mm. Uh, and um, yeah. And he he maneuvered the situation so we wouldn't be alarmed. Yeah. And he just he just disappeared. Yeah. Wow. I'm so sorry to hear that. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so what what was the what was that moment in time like for the family? Yeah, we were um absolutely shocked and devastated. And you know, he had this wide circle of friends too that, you know, really had no clue that this had been going on even in the last year. And, you know, we were all brought to our knees on it. And um, the night that he died, his uh, really good friend, Sean from Atlanta, called my brother's wife, Heather, and said, oh, my God, what do we do? And she said, no matter what you do, don't let him be forgotten. And so it was literally on the night of his death that Sean's wheels started turning and he started to imagine some ways that we could honor my brother's life, but also prevent what happened to him from happening to other people. And so a month later, this man had pulled together all my brother's closest friends and our family and our acute grief to do something. You know, this is not an uncommon story out of tragedy, but um, we pulled together and we got on conference calls and we cried and we laughed because my brother was pretty hilarious. And, uh, and, and not too far after we decided we were going to do some bold gap filling work to prevent what happened to Carson from happening to other people. And one of the things that was very apparent, and again, I'd been in the field of mental health about 16 years in this point in time, I had had really good training and education and mentors, but nobody really told me about suicide. And this is a little known secret uh, in the mental health community. It's changing, but um, most mental health professionals are not adequately trained in state-of-the-art practices and suicide prevention um, intervention, and let alone what we do after a suicide. So uh, I was underprepared, and I know now a lot more than I did then. Um, and one of the things that was news to me was that you know the majority of people who die by suicide, about 80%, are male, and the majority of those are working-aged men. And the majority of those working age men who die by suicide have never stepped foot, unlike my brother, have never stepped foot in any kind of mental health services. Um, They have one attempt and it's fatal. So that seemed like a really, really, really important gap to fill. And we set out to try to find some innovative ways to to fill that gap. Well, um, you started by saying how grateful you were about what we're doing with this podcast and for having uh, the mission that we do. And I just need to 
reflect that right back to you, Sally. I really appreciate you taking this. Um, you know, I hate to even call it an opportunity, but in a in a very you know important way, it was an opportunity to to really get present to that gap and and do you know something about it. So thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. I do find um, you know there's common threads among all the people working in suicide prevention because uh, nobody gets into this work because they're going to get rich or famous. You know, we all have this calling, uh, a passion that's deep and many different stories. Some, some people have lived through their own suicide intensity experiences or have been caregivers or support people for others. Uh, and many of us have lost loved ones. And so this just kind of fuels us. And, you know, there's very little, there's very few things that will stop us. Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. That's awesome. So, um, when did, did was it just at that point in time, like close to the end where you guys started um, uh, seeing signs that, um, you know, that this was possible for your brother or were you were you all starting to get suspicious before that? We we knew he was critically unwell um, from about May on when he was having his manic episode. Yeah, he was doing things that were very unlike himself and, and, and just the meanness. I told you, like he, he pulled away from the family. He was really mean to all of us as a, as a way of distancing himself. And I would, I remember looking into his eyes and and thinking, I don't know you, I don't know where my brother went, but you are not he. Um, And it was just heartbreaking. I mean, he would call me and he didn't really make a lot of sense. And we would get in these fights that weren't going anywhere. And then he would hang up on me and I would just be crying because I couldn't understand him and I couldn't reach him. Um, you know, it just got to a point too, where my husband had to intervene and said, you know, listen, you can't call your sister anymore because this is too upsetting. You know, when you are well again, you know, we, we can connect because it was just ripping the family apart. So we, we knew for a long time that he yeah. was unwell, but you know, adults who are not in imminent danger of hurting themselves or others, which she wasn't, he was just messing up his life, you know, have, the right to do that. And so so this is just one of those really horrible things about bipolar condition when it's, when it's really in an extreme form, it's very, very hard um, to manage unless people are, you know, having the right kind of treatment. Yeah. Um, If that situation were to happen today, do you think you'd be able to handle it differently? I would. And I'll tell you what I would do differently. I would um, now that I know of literally hundreds of people that have lived through similar experiences, especially successful uh, businessmen that my brother would really identify with, I would connect him to a peer. Um, I think that would have been the opportunity that I didn't have then that I would have now. Uh, someone who would walk alongside him and say, listen, I've been here too. I, I understand a, a good chunk of this, even though I don't know exactly what you're going through. I have some ideas of things that might be helpful and just could, it could just connect to them, to him, man to man, peer to peer, uh, and really help him know that he wasn't alone and that there were other opportunities for him. Yeah, that's, uh, that's great. Um, so, okay. So, um, one of the 
the the the greatest reasons why um, I think this conversation is going to be so awesome is because you have so many resources that you can teach us about and and some really some groundbreaking work that you and your and your colleagues have have created out of this uh, story. So um, for the listeners, um, uh, please please be listening really closely for signs that we can see when things are things are going in this direction for people and for uh, what to do about it when it happens right so um a couple of a couple of questions more that i have about your your brother's situation in particular do you do you do you think that um this type of thinking and and uh like you know suicidal thoughts and things like that are more uh happen more so in people that um are in business for themselves isolation is a really key factor in suicide risk. People who are isolated um, have don't really have a safety net to fall into when life becomes unmanageable. So a lot of people who are entrepreneurs or who are separated from their families, like a lot of people in construction often are, are just more vulnerable um, to really going into some dark places because if you think about it, it's the people in our lives and you don't have to have a ton of them, but you have to have a few at least that are incredibly trustworthy and that bring out the best in you and that show up for you. We all need that. Yeah. We need people and we need purpose. We need something that we feel is worth hanging on when things are stressful and overwhelming, that there's something else that we're supposed to be doing or learning or growing to. Um, and so when we lose those things, uh, that's when we get in trouble because we all have pain. We all have tragedy. We all have things that are upsetting to us, but it's, it's this connection to others and a sense of something bigger than ourselves, whatever that means that helps us persevere through the pain uh, and come back to things that um, really give our life a sense of passion. Yeah. So if people are entrepreneurs or, you know, working on their own, they just have to be very mindful that they don't get so separated from the people in their life that matter that they become that increasingly vulnerable. Yeah. Yeah. Support structures. Um, I think that's, that's hugely important. So if you were, if you were looking at Carson's life, I mean, what, what do you think happened? I mean, I get that he, it's, it sounds like he lost his business or, uh, um, and, and things weren't going well, but like, what else was going on? Did, how, was he pulling away from the family? Did, did, you know, like what else was happening? Um, I, I honestly believe in his case, this serious break with mental illness that occurred around May. And we don't know why. I mean, yeah. he, he, he was not doing great before that, but this was a drastic shift um, over the late spring of 2004 um, that, like I said, like I looked into his face and he wasn't there. Like his, his brain took a left-hand turn and then he made all kinds of decisions that just wrecked his life. He left his family. He moved in a million dollar loft that he didn't have inspected, but an $80,000 car um, separated from his business partner because he wanted to, well, first of all, they were fighting. He was fighting with everybody. Um, and he wanted to launch a new company that was even bigger by himself um, without really a strong plan 
Um, and, you know, it was just doing all kinds of really reckless, reckless things that had everybody scared and that he would get in fights, you know? So it was, I would say all of that behavior was, was not him, you know, it was not him. And so that when he kind of came to, after he had the discussion with the accountant, that he reclaimed himself. Like he, I could see him again. And I'm so grateful that I had that. Uh, you know, I remember when we, you know, we saw each other again, it, would, it had been several months and he met me in the, in the driveway and he just sobbed and sobbed and sobbed in my arms. And I was like, oh my God, you're back. Uh, but when he looked back on the wreckage of his life, that he had made and all of in, in his mind, all the burden he created and all the damage that he perceived he had done. He did not think he would ever get out of it or that people would ever forgive him. And of course we would have, we did immediately. Um, but he didn't see that. And, and so one of the things that I felt found really helpful in understanding kind of what he went through in those last, in that last year was uh, reading Dr. Joyner's book, um, Why People Die by Suicide. It had just come out. And in the book, he talks about this model that is based in his research. Um, he's one of the most prolific psychologists out there writing on this particular topic. And he had gathered all of these um, papers that others had written on the risk factors for suicide. And he kind of gathered them together into three main things that were contributing to suicide risk. And one of them was what he called perceived burdensomeness, that the person um, comes to believe that their death has more value to the people who love them than their life does. And I feel like that's definitely the state that he was in. And the other is, as we've been talking about, thwarted belongingness. Like I used to belong and now I don't. I used to have these relationships and now they've been taken away. <clears throat> And those two things together really drive that desire, he says, um, desire for suicide. We would maybe call it a, a desire to escape unimaginable emotional pain. Um, and a lot of people have that, actually. This is another thing that most people don't know, that suicidal thoughts are actually really common. Um, we just don't always share them with each other. And so people don't see it like a broken arm or something. So you just assume that nobody has them. But it is the case that actually many people have them and they vary in different degrees of intensity all the time. Um, the thing that moves people at, from a risk state of just thoughts to um, death is what he called capability. And capability um, is really defined in three ways. One is that um, the person's just a little bit more fearless. Like they just come into the world a little bit more fearless. They have that sense of, you know, doing things that most of us wouldn't do because they can just face it. Right. And yeah. so, and again, thank goodness we have that or we wouldn't have firefighters and warriors and construction workers and all these things. Yeah. However, when people like that get thoughts of suicide, they tend to be far more deadly. Um, trauma history is another thing. And then kind of knowing what to do, having access to and, and knowledge of lethal means. So I really feel like it was actually that first part. My brother was a born risk taker from his whole life um, that, you know, he was going to take a pretty drastic action. Yeah. So, um, so I kind of, th those kind of things coming together in like a perfect storm was, um, really helped me understand how it came to be.
Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for pointing to how common it is. You know, I have, I have experience with this personally as one of the biggest reasons I started this podcast. And I, you know, I share about that in the, in the first full episode, it's, you know, I, I felt like to, you know, to get this thing going, to be a leader in this, I should go first. So I shared my story in, in that first um, episode. Um, but I, what I, what I want to hear you speak to is, um, you know, in, in terms of that, the normalcy that you pointed to, um, I would, I would guess that not everybody has, uh, that, you know, that, that man, that mania happening and that, you know, that deep of depression happening, I guess the bottom line of what I'm, what I'm asserting is that sometimes it's not as obvious. So what would you tell us to look out for? Well, first of all, um, one of the things that I ha- try to have people shift their mindset around is that you you don't need the big red flag mm. um, because we know it's so common. I just tell people to assume it's on the menu. Mm. Uh, assume it's on the menu, uh, especially with the high risk groups um, that have a, a lot of those risk factors just right there. Just assume it's there because you'll approach it differently. Um, and you'll be a little bit more forthright than if you're wondering and waiting. So, and the way I tell people to do that is just to connect the dots for people, you know, say like, you know what, you know, I, I, you know, I, I, I understand that you're going through a divorce and that you, you told me you haven't been sleeping well. And I see you out in the bars and you're drinking a lot more than you usually do. And sometimes when people are going through a divorce and not sleeping and drinking more than they usually do, sometimes they're also thinking about suicide. You know, you just connect the dots in a matter of fact way rather than waiting for some kind of obvious sign um, because, you know, there's good reasons why people don't tell us. You know, there's a lot of discrimination. Um, there's a lot of shame. There's a lot of uncertainty of what's going to happen if I tell you and all of this stuff. So we as support people really need to work hard to earn the trust and to be trustworthy. Um, and to be compassionate and validating and to know the resources. That's our job. That's all of our job yeah. is to, to be able to build those skills in ourselves because the chances are great that either we or someone incredibly close to us is going to have that experience. Um, and sometimes it does take that person to make that first step to reach out. And I'll, I'll also tell you that, you know, years later in 2012, I went through my own episode of depression and, uh, you know, I can't tell you what was different about my life then I had a lot of major stresses that came on me all at the same time plus a health issue and whatever for whatever reason that particular combination of stressors in my life put my mental health in the toilet and I had all this awareness about it like I could see you know because I wasn't sleeping at all I couldn't eat at all you know those are two pretty obvious things um, and awareness that this was different and I wasn't doing well, but my, and here I am, right. I'm a psychologist. I've lost my brother. I'm like this expert in suicide prevention. I had all this awareness and I still fell into the deep dark hole, um, because my brain told me like the way I'm going to get through it is I'm just going to need to work harder. Right. So that was not the answer. <laughs> um, and it took my father to reach through my depression and pull me aside and say, sweetheart, 
it's time to take your own advice and go get help. And I'm not ashamed to say that because I know the power that depression has over people. It is gripping. Um, and I have never been back to that state because now I know all the smaller things that lead to that. And I'm not going back there. So, yeah. um, and, and should I, I've got tons of people now that would, would reach through the depression and grab me. <laughs> so, yeah. and and thanks for not being ashamed to share it because I yeah. think that's one of the that's one of the biggest things that we can do to to change all of you know these horrible statistics out there is is to be willing to share, you know, to to kind of break down the walls and to be open and and share the truth with with people because it's you know it sounds cliche but it's okay to not be okay and mm-hmm. we need to make it okay right, um, so. Uh, as you know, this this uh, podcast is uh, uh, mainly targeted to construction uh, workers and surrounding industries, you know, your blue collar type industries where people are working out in the field. And I think that and look, this is a this is a guess of mine, but I think it's a pretty well educated guess that uh, especially in those industries, the you know, the level of stigma around mental health is super high. Like it's it's you know, generally speaking, it's not okay to feel those ways. And it's certainly something that you don't talk about with your coworkers and, uh, or your boss. And there are several amazing organizations out there making a huge difference. Uh, one of them is CASP. Um, and, uh, there is a lot of training out there, but I, 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 I feel like it just can't happen fast enough. So if any, anybody is listening today, that is, uh, you know, works on a construction site or um, in any one of those surrounding fields, what would you tell them? Like how, the other thing that I said that, I know this is kind of long-winded, so just bear with me. The other thing that I heard you say is it's all of our responsibilities, right? So how do we teach those people in an industry like construction where the, the suicide rate is literally the highest in any other industry? How do we, how do we teach the everyday you know, uh, uh, folks out in the field to be on the lookout for uh, mental health issues like this and to empower them to, you know, turn to their friend and and ask them if they're suicidal and what they need. Mm-hmm. Um, well, part of it is what you're doing here on the podcast, um, because as long as it's kind of an abstract thing, you know, some people, those people, those mentally ill people, whatever, then it's the other. And it's not us because we're strong and we're competent and we're pragmatic and we, we solve problems. We don't have problems, right? It's somebody else, right? So instead of that mindset, um, the, the we all have each other's back mindset is the thing that needs to go forward. And the way that it does is because people share stories and it only takes one, really one brave person like yourself, like the people you're bringing on this podcast to kind of break through the idea that it doesn't happen to us. Of course, it happens to us. It happens to everybody. Everybody goes through a hard time. Um, But when you hear your buddy, your coworker, someone you respect, someone you trust talk about, oh yeah, me too, right? Who hasn't, right? Then you're like, oh, okay, well, if you're sharing your story, maybe I could share my story. And then all of a sudden it becomes the we, and we need to look out for one another. It's us. And we're going to be better. We're going to be a better team. We're going to be a better company. We're going to be better, whatever. 
if we are able to look out for one another. And, and I have just seen this blossom actually in, in construction. And uh, I would have never in my wildest dreams guessed that, you know, today about 80% of the work that I do is in construction. And then when I used to fly, I would be like getting off planes and getting on stages and talking to audiences of like, you know, hundreds and hundreds of, you know, these really strong men. And I'd be like, oh, how the hell did I get here? And then I'd yeah. be thinking, I, this is absolutely the place I need to be. And I, I absolutely love it um, because it is a pragmatic industry. People are like, okay, we got a problem. We got to solve a problem. Tell us how to solve a problem. And I'm like, oh, great. I've been waiting for you my whole life. I got 20 things here, you know? Um, and so, so that's part of it is it's storytelling and it's a mindset of we have back. It's what we do. And we're better when we do it. So if you're not going to learn it for yourself, you're going to learn it because somebody you really care about on your team or in your crew or whatever uh, might need you to know a few things. And of course, you learn about yourself, too, when you go through those things. Yeah. Um, but the other thing that I really want to emphasize, and I'm so um, Cal and I, uh, Cal Byer, I know you've had uh, connected to this podcast, too. And, you know, one of my beautiful memories was um, standing with him in front of the board of trustees of uh, Construction Financial Management Association. And we're both crying because we know that moment of getting their buy-in was going to be so important. And we had seen on the front lines how important this issue was. And we are um, really pitching an idea of starting an, a national association for suicide prevention and construction. And they said yes. And that was like the moment that um, CASP was born and now look at it like it's huge and all kinds of companies and associations are part of it. Um, and what I really am hoping, I'm hoping, I'm seeing as they are gathering all of these early adopters who are leading it and say, okay, we got it. What do we do? Um, is that people don't think of this as a one-off training thing that's going to solve the problem or a one-off anything that it really needs to be a well-developed strategy that is baked in into the overall health and safety culture of the company, of the union, of the professional association, whatever it is the organization is that, that's facing this, um, and that it really kind of gets baked in at all the levels. So I need bold leaders. I always look for where are the bold leaders, who, who's going to be the champion here, who also has decision-making power over time and money and you know sees this, understands how deeply connected mental well-being physical safety, all of these things are productivity. They're all incredibly intertwined. And if they get this right, safety infants go down, productivity goes up, they're going to be able to recruit and retain talent. Um, and they're going to get better jobs because uh, clients are now looking to make sure that that companies are not just you know, physically safe, but they're also psychologically safe. Um, so it's going to benefit everybody. Uh, in many ways, if, if leaders get this right, and not just for, for the money, but because they really care about their workers. And I know most many of them do. Um, so I'm looking for leaders. I'm looking for also people who are mindful of, it's not just a mental health issue that gets people into suicidal despair. There's a lot of other stuff that goes on in the environment that really can drive incredible distress. Um, you know, bullying, hazing, harassment, discrimination, prejudice, all of these things. We can send people to counseling all day. It's not going to fix the fact that they work in a very toxic environment. Um, and I think, you know, we're, we're certainly in a generation with our emerging workers where they're not going to put up with that. I mean, they're just not, you know, they have an awareness now that maybe the older workers didn't have when they were 20 to 
two or whatever, our younger workers are much more in tune with those issues and we're, you know, they're just not going to stick around. Um, so all of these things, the upstream kinds of preventive approaches, midstream, how do we catch things early? And then really in a compassionate and well thought out way, connect people to the right resources. Like that's not an easy thing to do, but it's certainly something that everybody can work towards. And then downstream, you know, how do we show up after a person's had a suicide attempt or after a company has lost someone to suicide? Because what you do in what we call those post-vention moments, oh. oh boy, that matters so much for everybody who's watching and everybody who's also experiencing it at the same time. So that's what we really try to advocate. Yeah, and that's awesome. Yeah. I was just going to say that another resource that is, you know, uh, that I really want to share with you is um, Construction Working Minds. So Construction Working Minds is a is a website that highlights a lot of this upstream, midstream and downstream approach to suicide prevention. Um, over the last year, we had it translated and transculturated into eight languages for nine different countries. Um, and it's it shares all kinds of case studies and tools and all kinds of stuff. So it's kind of like the practical implementation um, website for construction suicide prevention. That's that's amazing. That's awesome. I didn't uh, I didn't know about that one. I'm going to check that out myself. And and um, uh, so I'd love to hear you talk more about that. But I also have another question before we get into that. Um, and I was going to ask you this, and you touched on it already. And that's that's more of what not to do. Like what should what should co-workers not be doing? You talked about bullying, you talked about, uh, you know, really ways of being with people that are, um, you know, causing these types of, of thoughts and causing people to take action on them. So could you say a little bit more about that? Yeah. So, you know, think about how you would like to be treated when you're having a hard time, just start there. And I always tell people like, you know, these skills, you have these skills, you just forget them <laughs> when you get into, uh, you know, the scary places of addiction and, and mental illness and suicide. Like we go, oh, we get frozen. Cause we're like, oh, oh, that's way too complicated. I can't, yes, you can. You know, you just forgot like listening well showing compassion, showing empathy. Um, the things not to do are, you know, to, to run right in and give a bunch of advice. Again, problem solving people, that's kind of their go-to. They like to fix problems. And I say, you, you know, you can get there eventually. How about in the first, you know, first round of this, you just show up and listen um, and not pass judgment, but really open open the door so that other people um, can feel seen and can have their, their story told. Cause it's going to take a while to develop that trust where people feel like they can really do that. Yeah. Um, not to discount people or try to talk them out of it. That's another thing that we tend to do like, Oh no, no, that's not such a big deal. Or, Oh, you think that's bad? Well, this happened to me and it was 10 times worse. Yeah. Don't do that. Um, you know, there's all kinds of ways that people, um, maybe have well good intentions of supporting someone but what they end up doing is basically discounting somebody else's pain uh and and it takes practice this is why the training part is really important and the training should be baked into other types of safety training so that people can get it regularly and practice the skills because you don't get it on the first round um the other thing that sometimes happens that's not helpful is people just chalk it up to manipulation or attention seeking or it's just a gesture they don't really mean it um, and that is a very slippery slope. That's a very slippery slope. So let's just say for sake of argument 
that a person who's experiencing or expressing suicidal thoughts doesn't mean it at all. Not at all. They're just yanking everybody's chain and they just want attention. All right, let's just play this logic out. Out of all the ways that they could possibly get attention, they chose suicide. Like they could have chosen anything to get attention and they chose suicide. Like that's that's a lean in, not a discount. You need to lean in to understand how that's functioning for them. Like what is it serving for them and how to, how can they get that met, need met in a different way? Um, because when you ignore that behavior, um, you run the risk of something we call an extinction burst. And as soon as I describe it, everybody's going to know what I'm talking about. If anybody listening has ever had a toddler, um, and as parents, we are usually advised when our toddler is having a temper tantrum that we give them a timeout. You know, we put them in the bathroom and we give them a timeout. And what do that? What do those little guys do? Little guys and gals do as soon as we close the door? Oh my gosh, they lose their little toddler minds. They're like they're pounding on the door, they're throwing the shoes or the big red face. That's an extinction burst that the, the behavior actually increases before it decreases. Um, you've all probably experienced this as well. When you put the quarters in the vending machine and you don't get your pop, you bang on the vending machine. Okay. That, that's an extinction burst. We've all done it. It's human behavior. You do not want to mess with an extinction burst when the behavior in question is suicide because people up the ante, up the ante, up the ante. And you know what? they die. And so there you are saying it was just a gesture of manipulation. They didn't mean it. And you could have had in a moment where you, you leaned in to understand and validate the pain that was driving that, but you discounted it. And so that's the, that's another thing that we're trying to get people to, to really understand that it's not helpful to just chalk it up as attention seeking. Yeah. It's attention needing people yeah. need attention. We all need attention. Of course. Totally. Totally. I mean, what this makes me think of too is, uh, um, culture, you know, like there's, there's gotta be a culture of inclusion and belonging and treating people in a, you know, healthy, loving, friendly way with or without any um, direct indication of somebody having suicidal thoughts, you know, like there's gotta be, there's gotta be less bullying and less, you know, kind of, you know, uh, uh, um, saying harmful, harmful things to people and not validating people's thoughts and feelings, generally speaking, that environment needs to be there. Uh, and, and if it's not, if the bullying is it exists, it's going to be an environment more conducive to make the suicidal thoughts worse. Right, right. And I also want to just share a little bit about my thoughts on stigma. Um, yeah. So when when my brother died, we, we formed a nonprofit and our tagline was removing the stigma of mental illness, because I did believe that stigma killed my brother more than even the pain of his mental illness itself. He was so ashamed. I would agree with uh, that. Yeah. Right. So, so we had all these business cards printed up and one of my heroes is Dr. K. Redfield Jameson. Um, she's written a number of beautiful, powerful books on bipolar condition and suicide and so forth. And she's a storyteller. She's, she lives with it herself. And anyway, she's just my, my hero. And so as soon as we had raised enough money, I invited her to come to Colorado. And I remember going out to the airport to pick her up. And I felt like I was meeting Bono. I was so, so, so nervous. And she gets in my car and I'm like, Dr. Jameson, how do we remove the stigma of mental illness? And she just looked at me and she went, oh God. And I was like, well, what did I say? She's like, okay, first of all, stop using that word. And I went, what? 1500 business cards, what? And she said, here, I'll tell you why. And as soon as she started talking, I knew, I knew what she was saying 
was right um, because she said, our brains are wired to remember the negative. And we all know that's true, right? You're, you're driving to Kansas and it's all flat. You're, you're like pretty much asleep. And then the antelope jumps in your way. You're like, whoa, I'm awake. Our brains are wired to pay attention to the negative, just pay attention to the problems. And every time you talk about stigma, guess what you do? You're reinforcing stigma. I'm like, shoot, you're right. I said, well, how do we fix this then? She said, well, first of all, it's not really stigma because stigma is like this gray cloud that walks around with a person. What it really is, is it's, you know, about discrimination and prejudice that other people have because they are, have misunderstandings about what the person is experiencing. She says the way to get through this, and this was also um, supported by Dr. Patrick Corrigan's research, is the way you get through it is you focus on the stories, the resilience, the courage, the healing, how things work, where peers make a difference. Um, how advocacy can turn um, a tragic experience into incredible post-traumatic growth, like all of those things tell a bigger tale. And that's how you get through it. And, and, and Patrick Corrigan calls it personal connection. In personal relationships with people that have this experience that you don't fully understand when you understand the human that's involved with that experience, you see humanity. You don't see other, you see, oh, this is my friend and they happen to have this thing. And now I understand it better than I did before. Um, so your part on helping lift up those stories, that's what's going to, you know, do a big job of just want to have that. Cause I think it's an important thing. There's so much talk about stigma, 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 stigma. And I'm like, stop. <laughs> Let's talk about resilience and courage and, 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 and peers and, and hope. And the fact that we have amazing companies doing amazing work. Let's lift that up and tell those stories. That is that that's so brilliant and seems so simple yet. Like that you, everywhere you turn, people are talking about that, the stigma, right? And so that's such a brilliant way to, you know, kind of shift the context. It's, it's beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so one of the things that I also wanted to highlight, cause I want to make sure that your listeners have some additional resources. Yes. So please. in addition to construction working minds, which is construction specific, we also have national guidelines for workplace suicide prevention. Um, these national guidelines were launched in on world mental health day in 2019. So October 10th, 2019. Um, and it's a, a, a partnership that is supported by the American association of suicidology and the American foundation for suicide prevention to of our largest nonprofit organizations. And then a, a little nonprofit that I've, I'm helping to support, which is called United Suicide Survivors International, which like you, we are all about bringing those lived experience voices to the table and making sure that they matter just as much as the researchers and the clinicians and the policymakers and so on. Um, and so together, our three organizations launched this. And today we have upwards of 700 pledge partners. So um, workplace leaders, professional associations, labor, et cetera, who have raised their hands and say, yeah, is a health and safety priority for our organization. Um, and then once they become registered pledge partners, they get access to all kinds of content. It's free. There's no cost. It's, it's, it's um, nine steps and eight 
guiding principles and, you know, they get rewarded with badges as they take these action steps and they can demonstrate to their peers, like I'm a bronze level pledge partner or silver or gold, and they can work their way towards becoming um, more suicide informed. And so that's just a, another resource for, for companies that are wondering, like, I don't know what to do. I don't, I'm not an expert in this area. Listen, we'll, we'll hold your hand and we'll walk you through a process. Um, so I want to make sure that people understood that workplace suicide prevention.com is where you find that. Um, um, constructionworkingminds.com is where you can find the construction specific resources. And then another um, important resource um, that I want to mention for the, the male construction workers is man therapy. So again, going back to my, my brother's death um, and finding that data that 80% of people who die by suicide are male and most are working age men and most never reached out and had one attempt it's fatal. I'm like, well, my goodness, how do we get to these guys? And so together with the Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment and a full service advertising agency called Cactus, our, um, our team started to do some research in that area. And we, we interviewed men who had survived suicide attempts and we had focus groups with you know, all kinds of different high risk men um, and the people who support them. And anyway, the upshot of all of that was the guys told us a bunch of stuff that was really important. One, they said, um, you know, the message that you mental health providers put out there all the time, if you're depressed, seek help. Hmm, yeah, that misses us on both accounts. First of all, we don't see our distress through a lens of mental health issues. So we just discount it right there. Um, we see it more as that we have a very stressful life. We have a lot of things that are overwhelming to us, like our job and parenting and our partner and money. Um, it's out here. It's not in here. So we discount that from step one and then go seek help. Yeah. You know what? We were all conditioned from birth to be self-reliant, to solve problems, to be the one that people leaned on. We don't lean on other people. So you've got to make a really good argument if that is the pathway we're supposed to take. Um, and Cause we don't really trust it. <laughs> we don't really trust it. We don't understand how it's supposed to work. It doesn't make sense. So start there. You have to meet us where we're at. Start there. You have to come over to our world because we're not coming to your world. And we're like, all right, we'll figure all that out, I suppose. Um, who are you going to listen to? Is it a celebrity? You know, is it an expert? And they're like, no, no, it's a guy just like me. Maybe one step about above me in some kind of perceived power hierarchy I have in my head. Like it's a guy's guy, someone I have vicarious respect for. That was a quote. Um, and if that guy like me is talking about this kind of stuff, I'm listening to him way before I listen to letters after their name. I'm like, all right, we can probably figure that out too. How do we find you? Like where, how do we grab your attention through all the clutter of communication that's out there? And they're like, oh yeah, that's easy. I'm like, well, yeah, what is it? And they're like, well, you make it funny. And we went, what? Funny? Are you kidding me? How do we make mental health issues and suicide funny and not offend a whole bunch of people? And they're like, I don't know, but that's your problem. If you figure that out and if it's our kind of funny, we'll not only pay attention, we will pass it on to other guys. And we're like, all right. So luckily for us, the, the creative geniuses at Cactus understood funny and they understood um, kind of targeting funny uh, towards certain, certain populations. And so they came up with man therapy. So mantherapy.org. We have developed a fictional doctor, Dr. Rich Mahogany. Uh, think like Parks and Rec dude, right? He's yeah. he's he's got a dry wit, um, um, but he just nails it. And <laughs> he uses his humor, the humor and the digital media, which is 
which is so well produced, is the bait. Uh, and that gets the men's attention um, and drives them to mantherapy.org. And our main thing that we want them to do there is self-screen. This is another thing they told us. They're like, before you send us to some kind of doctor, can we just see for ourselves, like, how bad is it? Should I be worried about myself? And like the privacy of my own space, can I just do that first? And we're like, of course. So we have developed pretty validated tools for people to self-screen for depression, anxiety, substance use, and anger. And then and then, um, and then they get content like Pinterest, self-help tips, peers, professional help that we have vetted and crisis help. If they tell us that they're in crisis, we're going to directly connect them to like the Veterans Crisis Line or the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. Um, and so this has been going on now since 2012. And we just um, wrapped up a five-year randomized control trial, a uh, high level of scientific rigor uh, funded by the CDC and the state of Michigan to show that, yes, indeed, it's effective. And most recently, we also developed a construction industry um, bench of collateral. So we've got posters and other types of things that construction companies or labor unions or whatever can send out to their male members um, to say, you know, if you or someone you know is having a hard time, here's a good place to start. Yeah. Go, go in and, and, and get a 20 point head inspection. <laughs> <laughs> wow. That's so, that's so brilliant. I, um, so do, who were the people that you were interviewing to get all that information? Oh, it was two years worth of, of research and development before we started it. So um, at the time I was working at um, a university. And so okay. again, this is back in the early days, uh, like 2006, 2007-ish, um, to get what we call an IRB, a, a, a human subjects approval to do research on people who had survived a suicide attempt was pretty much unheard of back then. Um, and luckily, for whatever reason, my to interview um, amazing men and they were you know everybody's so aware like oh my gosh how risky they're so fragile I'm like no they're not fragile they're they're completely bold and they were so um, grateful they were so grateful like they said you know over and over and again I heard if my story if my input here helps just one other guy you know what I went through is worth it because I now can leverage that wisdom to make sure that nobody else goes through what I went through. And, and many of them are still with me today. We did that work in 2007. Many of them are still, Sally, how else can I help? How, what else, what are you doing now? Can I help with that? You know, like they're still like turning that pain into helping other people um, has been a lifesaver for them. That's so amazing. Yeah, you know, I, I think that in general, people, people need to not relate to each other as fragile. You know, if somebody if somebody is is bringing up some kind of, um, you know, crisis or issue that they're dealing with, I think that's probably one of the things that stands in the way of uh, folks just directly having a conversation to support that person is because they're relating to them as fragile. And we might do something wrong by directly asking, hey, are you OK? And are you having suicidal thoughts? Right. And so people stay away. Do you, do you think that's right? Yeah. So, um, yes, uh, uh, know that there's inner strength there that needs to be, um, that that's there. Like everybody has this core flicker yeah. of, of, of a, a desire to live. Um, the people who are suicidal 
most of them don't want to die. They're just in such excruciating pain. And so if we could just be with them, see them, this is, again, it's a really important thing. See them, hold pain with them. Um, that flame will tend to grow because they feel valued. Yeah. Uh, and the other point that I just want to make here too, is that, you know, when you just see the surface behavior, it's sometimes like, Oh my God, what's wrong with that person. Right. Oh my God, what are they doing? You know, and people can be really horrific with gossip and judgment and assumptions. Um, but most people, when they're not acting like themselves, something has happened to them. Um, there is so much connection between trauma and addiction between trauma and, and suicidal thoughts, between trauma and depression, that let's step back a moment before you place all the judgment on the person and really understand that many of them are coping the best way they can because this horrific thing has happened to them that they're not telling you. Um, and so just, you know, just be humble and be curious and be supportive and compassionate and you'll get a lot farther. Yeah. Wow. Brilliant. Well, I, um, I'm like, I don't want this to end. I'm so enthralled by this conversation and I can listen to you talk about this and, and all of these amazing resources all day. But, and we have to make sure that we end this at some point. So is there, is there any like uh, last nuggets that you would leave for the audience? Yeah, for each of you out there, be bold here. We need visible, vocal and visionary leaders of all kinds in this space. And I promise you, if you step into the arena, raise your hand and say, how do I help? What do I need to do? What do I need to learn? What do we need to you know, have here? Others will follow. It just takes a couple of bold leaders to really start changing a whole system. So, so be the one. Yeah, that's brilliant. Thank you so much, Sally. I just, I need to say that you are, you're the this is like the epitome of the tragedy to triumph story that we're looking for. And you've taken it to the next level and use, and look, a lot of, a lot of the folks that I've interviewed here and that I've talked to, they've, they've used their story to go and try and make a difference. And I just really acknowledge you for the level of the difference that you're making in the world based on something horrific that happened to you and your family and, and your brother. So thank you for that. Thank you for the the love and the courage and the boldness that it takes to stand up every day and bring this conversation out into the into the light. Uh, I need you to know you make a difference, and I really really appreciate you being here with us today. I'm super grateful. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. All right, everybody. Another amazing episode of the Tragedy to Triumph podcast. We're signing off for the day, and we'll see you all next week. It's our hope that this story makes a difference for another person. If it helps one person, we believe we've done our work. Consider telling a friend about this podcast. You might just make a difference for them too. Accomplishment Coaching, the world's finest coaches training program. I owe much of the man I am today to the work I've done and the relationships I've built in this community. For anybody out there who wants to start a career as a coach or enhance their skills as a coach, look no further. Transform your life and set yourself up to win in your coaching business at the same time. Find out more at accomplishmentcoaching.com.